we're going to be reading from the book of Amos, chapter 5, verse 18 through 24, and it reads as follows. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man from as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him is not the day of the lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it i hate i despise your feasts and i take no delight in your solemn assemblies even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings i will not accept them and the peace offerings of your fattened animals i will not look upon them Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters in righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Raven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power and the sufficiency of your word. We thank you that it is both infallible and inerrant, Lord God. That it has been given to us to read us, to correct us, so that we might know you and uh, know ourselves, Lord God. And so we, we thank you, Lord, that your word is going out today, that it is going to accomplish its purpose, and that uh, lives will be changed, that you are still calling, as you called during your earthly ministry, that those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And so, God, I pray that you would open ears today, spiritually, to let them hear. God, bless your word to our hearts. Let it be fruitful and effective. God, I pray for myself with no uh, illusions or delusions about um, my own holiness or spirituality, Lord God. I desperately cry before these this people that I need your help. And so, Lord, I ask you for that help right now and that you would enable me to do what can only be done rightly with your empowering. And so, Lord, I trust in you this morning. I stand uh, weak and broken before you and trust in you for your strength to deliver your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we're continuing our journey through the minor prophets. Um, we, uh, we've joked a little bit about this, that some of you didn't even know that minor prophets were in your Bible, that uh, these are the books that somehow uh, often collect dust, that we don't turn to a lot. We don't look to them for strength and comfort. We don't, uh, we don't usually chisel uh, their words into plaques and hang them on our kitchen walls. They, they're somewhat neglected. And, um, but how many of you believe that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so we believe that. And so we're, we're digging through the Minor Prophets. We're kind of doing a 30,000-foot overview and taking one book a week and, and examining the, its content, its meaning. And so that's what we're doing today. We've done Hosea and Joel, and today we find ourselves um, in the book of Amos. Um, again, we've told you this a couple times already, these are called the Minor Prophets for a couple of reasons. One, we know very little about their authors in most cases. And we also, uh, they're generally shorter than the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. And um, But what we don't want you to misunderstand, as we've been trying to indicate over and over, is that these books, short, tucked away in the back of the Old Testament, are no less important than the other books of the Bible. Again, 
All scripture is given by inspiration of God. So today, looking at the, the book of the prophet Amos. Now, Amos introduces himself in verse 1-1 as someone who was living among the shepherds. In, in uh, chapter 7, verse 14, he calls himself a herdsman and a dresser of figs. And with those statements, I'm starting to like Amos already. Amos is a rural guy. He's a farmer. He's a sheep herder. I, I imagine, this is speculative on my part, I imagine he's a little bit of a redneck. And so I think, you know, the, 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 what we know from him is he wasn't a typical prophet. He prophesied, he wasn't like Jeremiah who prophesied in and around Jerusalem, the, the seat of power of the nation of Judah. He wasn't one who confronted kings like Nathan did when he told David, you are the man after he'd slept with Bathsheba. He's not a prophet like Elijah who called down fire from heaven in showdowns with false prophets. In fact, shepherds were on the lowest rung of the ladder in society, this is the lowest economic, uh, you know, position in ancient Israel. And, and what I want you to understand, first of all, if we're going to glean something for ourselves from this, if God can use a nobody, a, a country boy from a little town called Tekoa, in ancient Israel, if God can use a guy like this to deliver his word powerfully, to see his word preserved for hundreds of years, a couple of millennia now, what can God do with your life if you're willing, if you're obedient, and if you've tuned your ear to his call? What can God do with you? So Amos prophesied to Israel. Now remember, we've talked about this a couple times, two kingdoms that, that used to be one kingdom. Israel, from the time of David, split into Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And so Amos prophesied to Israel during a time of national prosperity and peace. The same time we talked about that Hosea prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II. His book is a series of poetic or of, of hymns, of sermons that were delivered to Israel. Now Amos, as I mentioned, lived in Tekoa. And Tekoa was a little bitty speck of a village about nine miles south of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah. So he's from the southern kingdom. He's prophesying to the northern kingdom. He travels north to Bethel in, in Israel. And there, um, what, what, he, what was there at that time, he finds... Bethel, a worship center. There's a there's a temple there with with uh, you know calves that the first Jeroboam had made for the people to worship, so they wouldn't go to to Israel. It's a worship center where the worship of uh, a Jewish worship of Yahweh and idol worship are actually commingled. And what this has done, and this is the point of the book, it's led to a decline of righteousness and justice. And the introduction says that Amos was to deliver words which he saw concerning Israel. That's important because interestingly, he begins the book, if you look through chapters 1 and 2, he begins the book with oracles of judgment. He's proclaiming these, these oracles of judgment over seven other nations first. 
He's not mentioning Israel. He's mentioning these seven other nations. In chapter two, chapter one, in the beginning of chapter two, he pronounces God's judgment, this impending judgment that's coming to the Syrians, to the Philistines, to Tyre, to Edom, to Ammon, to Moab, and of course to Judah. And these nations, what you've got to understand, if you're looking at a map, these nations all surrounded Israel. Israel was smack dab in the center of all these other nations. And what he's doing in this, as we'll see in a moment, is he's showing that God is universally just. He's a God that punishes all sin, no matter whether it's found among pagans who cannot plead ignorance before him, or whether it's found among his own people who can't claim some advantage to avoid judgment. The judgments on the first six nations, these oracles of judgment, they focus on their common cruelty and their common brutality towards others. But but a question arises often, how can people who don't know God, these people did not know the true God of Israel, how can people who don't know God and haven't received His law, how can they be judged and held accountable by Him? Oftentimes a question comes up, well, what about you know people on some island in the South Pacific or deep in the jungles of South America? How is it fair that they are judged by God? Well, you may not know this, but the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans gives us the answer to that question. And our Aren't you glad? And this is what the Apostle Paul says. Romans 1, verse 19, he says, For what can... Now pay close attention to these words before your sympathy goes out to people who haven't heard just on the basis of the fact that they haven't heard. Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. Hmm. So what this is telling us is that all people everywhere, no matter where they live, no matter what advantages they have, all people everywhere have two witnesses, all of us. We have the witness of nature. Paul says that God's nature is seen in the things that have been made. They can look up at the stars. They can see the vast oceans. They can see the creatures that God has made. They can look at their own bodies and know that there has to be something beyond this reality. But they also have the witness, that's the first witness, they also have the witness of their own conscience. The the Bible says, what can be known about God is clearly perceived. So both, what the Bible's telling us there in Romans is that both conscience and creation show us the reality of both God and of our sin, and subsequently our need for a Savior, a Redeemer. But according to Amos, it's not just these wicked, pagan, God-defying nations. According to Amos, Judah, who are God's people, will be judged as well. And why is that? Well, Jesus, at the tail end of a parable, he told, gives us the example. 
exact reason for that. This is what he says. What, uh, what, uh, uh, well, first of all, let me give you what, uh, what Amos said, the reason they'd be judged. He says, because they've rejected the law of the Lord and they have not kept his statutes. This is Amos 2.4. Um, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So unlike the pagan nations, Judah is actually going to be judged more harshly because they had been given the truth of God's law and God's statutes, but they chose lies instead. And so what I want you to understand from this passage is that you and I and everyone around us will all be judged by the light that we've been given. So yes, uh, pagan nations in, in places where they haven't heard will be held accountable to God for defying God. But how much more... Will we, who have been given God's word, given his revelation, who have heard the message of of Jesus and his forgiveness and his redemption and rejected it, how much more will we be worthy of judgment? By the way, that's exactly what the book of Hebrews says. That if we neglect the salvation that has been presented to us, we will be judged more harshly. In our town, in Lubbock, Texas, there is a church on every single corner. We have podcasts on Apple and Spotify and everything else so that if you wanted to, you could literally hear the gospel around the clock. And yet, in fact, with this massive flood of Scripture and preaching and teaching bombarding us, the availability, the availability of it all the time, with that bombarding us, still some of us who have heard it choose to wallow in sin habits and unbelief. And it's naive of us to think that God may not hold us accountable because of some perverted view of grace or the love of God, that God will not hold us accountable for all that we've had access to, even though we've defied Him by taking it lightly, and we don't believe and we don't obey. And this is the passage I was talking about that Jesus says at the tail end of His parable. He says in Luke 12, 47, listen to these words carefully, and I hope for some of you they will literally strike strike a, a, a little bit of fear, a holy fear in your heart. Luke twelve forty seven, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. You will answer for the gospel truth that you have heard and that you have ignored. So here we are. We're back to Amos. Back at at this point in the story, he's delivered these seven oracles. And at this point, the people of Israel are feeling pretty good. They're feeling great. Why? Because they feel like they've got front row seats at a prize fight and they have just placed a winning bet. They feel great. They wanted God to pour out wrath on the nations surrounding them. They wanted that. They, they would be the benefactors in the aftermath. What would happen for them? Would they get gold? Would they get silver? Would they get livestock? Would they get land? This was good news for them. Go get them, God. Tear them up. And what about Judah? They didn't care if their self-righteous cousins to the south got theirs as well. 
Because God, in their mind, was stacking the deck in their favor. He was like saying, hey, I'm going to roll out of the red carpet for you guys. This is going to be great for you. I'm I'm getting everybody. But though Amos spent an average of 2.6 verses condemning each of the seven other nations, yes, I did the math, he will spend seven and two-thirds chapters, the remainder of the book, laying out a case against Israel. So the other nations that he, he pronounced these oracles over, that, that's almost an afterthought at this point because he's going to spend the rest of the book talking about Israel. And so God accuses them through Amos, Israel. He accuses Israel through Amos. He focuses on two main transgressions through the rest of the book that they have repeatedly committed, which were gross idolatry and rampant injustice. Amos 2.6 reads the, 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 uh, the pronouncement the, the, that was made against Israel. It says, For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in a pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those that have been fined. See, idolatry and injustice are not two separate issues in Israel, but they are deeply bound together. Idolatry has led to injustice, and injustice results in more idolatry. Notice, first of all, on one half of that equation, Israel's injustice. The Bible says that they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Well, what that's talking about, it probably refers to either taking bribes for false testimony or selling fellow Israelites into slavery because of indebtedness. This was a time, think about this, of great prosperity for Israel. At this time in the story, although this was quickly about the change based on these prophecies, although this was quickly about the change, this was a time when, when Israel was at peace, when Israel was rolling in wealth. But, but what we find here in Amos's writing is that much of the wealth was collected off the sweaty backs of their brothers and sisters. Like Gordon Gecko in the movie Wall Street, don't pretend like you haven't seen it, they thought greed is good. In selfishness, the people of Israel were oppressing the poor and they turned away from the hurting. The Bible says they lay themselves down on garments taken in pledge. The Israelites were exploiting others by making loans and then taking basic necessities of life as collateral. And this, in the, in the Mosaic law, is absolutely prohibited. Specifically prohibited. It says they drink wine of those, the wine of those who have been fined. So they robbed others of goods using the law to justify it and then they consumed their victims' wares for their own pleasure. But there was also tied, welded I should say, to this issue of, of, uh, of injustice was the issue of idolatry. 
He says, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. What is that talking about? Well, it refers to, we talked about this in Hosea, it refers to cult prostitution in idol worship where a poverty-stricken Israelite girl would be forced to participate in this perversion and it compounded the injustice in Israel. Remember the garments taken in pledge? The, the, uh, 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 Amos tells us that the father and son were using those garments that they'd taken as collateral from other people and using them as blankets to commit this uncleanness right beside of pagan altars. And people became this, drunk on this stolen wine we talked about by oppression. They, had, they oppressed the people, stole their wine, and they drank it and got drunk in the house that was dedicated to the worship of Yahweh. So what I want you to see is that idolatry fueled their growing injustice. And so right now, at this point in the story, all of you've gotten is history. We could, we could turn this into a college lecture and say, okay, there's the history of Amos, have a nice day. But the question that we always have to ask, especially when we're digging into the scriptures primarily of the Old Testament, is what does Amos have to say to the 21st century American church? Do you believe that he has something to say to us? What's happening? Let's review. The Israelites mixed the worship of God with idolatry and it resulted in injustice. And the hard question for us is, do we do the same? Do you and I, using the biblical language, do we count ourselves as the slaves of Christ? Or do we prefer in our culturally influenced Christianity prefer to merely craft an image that, that highlights the positive nature of Christianity? What I'm trying to say is, you know, two key things about being a believer, two things that we should all be doing is reading the Bible and praying. So when you read the Bible, when you pray, do you come to the Bible and prayer, do you come like David? David said in Psalms 139.23, listen to these words, search me, O God, and know my heart. Do we come like that or do we kind of say, God, you know my heart? You've seen my Instagram, Lord. You know my heart. (laughs) Search me, O God. Know my heart. Listen to this. Try me. Know my thoughts. Man, I I would never really know my thoughts without this book. I, I really wouldn't. I think so much more highly of myself than this book portrays me to be. Am I the only one? Know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Some of us, when the word or a preacher tell us there's a grievous way in us, we we fold immediately under the pressure of that. And David's doing just the opposite. He's like, tell me, God. My desire is to be your slave. My desire is to please you. Tell me what's in me, God. But some of us have fallen into that trap of Americanized Christianity where we'd rather post Instagram photos of an open Bible and a steaming cup of coffee and an inspirational verse or quote that doesn't offend anyone. Certainly not us. 
It doesn't demand our repentance, but we're hoping against hope that people will see us as spiritual because of that image. And that's exactly what it is. It's an image. And God said, you will not make any graven image. That is not worship. That is not the product of discipleship. That is not the fruit of faith. It is idolatry. We are not pointing anyone by our crucified life to Christ. We are, we are not subjecting ourselves to the Holy Spirit's fire of sanctification. We're just trying to display a clear vision for all to see of our own glory and neglecting Christ's glory. So how does God respond to that kind of self-centered religion? Raven read it to us. Amos 5.21, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Listen, folks, hypocritical worship produces nothing God wants. It is better, and I'm saying this as the preacher, it is better to stay home than to attend these services with a hardened and unrepentant heart. It is better never to sing the songs of Zion than to shout words of worship with a heart that is filled with self-praise. It is better never to speak publicly of Christ than to cancel His reality with your phony faith. So that's idolatry. What about injustice? I think we can't read through Amos without asking ourselves the question, how much of our lives in our prosperous... We're a lot like Israel. We're in a prosperous time, a time of peace. How much of our lives are others-oriented? How do we respond when others inconvenience us? If your charity and your generosity were seen clearly by others, if there was a report issued to everyone else that you know of your charity, of your generosity, would you, would you rejoice in that? Or would you hide your face in shame and embarrassment? Ask yourself this question. It's a hard question. When did you last give money? When did you last give time to anyone sacrificially when it was of no apparent value to you? Even if it was an extreme blessing to the recipient. When was that time? Ask yourself that. Don't be a chicken. Ask yourself that. And listen, I'm not talking about giving a bum a sandwich. I had a guy who did homeless ministry in, in um, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, a friend of mine. And he always used to say, you know, talking about the people that would show up, you know, soup kitchens on Thanksgiving. And his, his motto was, everyone wants to give a bum a sandwich. I'm not talking about giving a bum a sandwich. What I'm asking you, 
I'm asking you, and I hope this little question will resonate in your soul right now at this moment, months away from Thanksgiving, months away till the next Thanksgiving. Do your neighbors, your co-workers, your family, your friends, and yes, even your enemies know that you really care about them? Do they know this because you've gone out of your way to make it clear? And ask yourself further, how do you treat people who are politically or racially or economically or philosophically or even theologically different than you are? We are in an age, more than any in my lifetime, where polarization, the separation to the far corners of thought, defines the atmosphere of our country. We have never been more divided. Would anybody disagree with that? It's crazy. And I'm not talking about being woke. Don't get nervous. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, just keeping quiet and just to get along. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about speaking the truth. Are we the kind of people who are committed to speaking the truth in costly ways that cause us to die to ourselves? That's how we avoid injustice. The church should never be polarized, never. Listen to me. There shouldn't be, you know, churches that, that separate because of these types of issues. Why? Because we have one aim that unites us. We don't have, we're not a church with 50 separate agendas. I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about the church. The church is not a, a... A body with 50 separate agendas, we have one aim that should unite us. Paul tells us about it in Ephesians 4. He said there is one body. There's one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And on that, I hope that we, people of God, can agree. So in Israel, idolatry had supplanted righteousness. <clears throat> there was no hope for true justice in the land. And so Amos, in, in Amos chapter 5, he pleads with Israel. He says, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. All right. Let's be honest now, okay? Y'all with me? Everybody still, still awake? Amos makes this plea, but that's kind of where it gets tricky, isn't it? Why? Because I'm going to speak for myself. I'm not going to assume this applies to any of you. I'll let God be your judge, but I can, I find myself, this, this is the case often, I, that I can make a pledge, a strong pledge to seek good and not evil. But it seems like my personal war with idols is moment by moment. That, that I can overthrow an idol, and as soon as I turn back around, another one has taken its place. Again, I'm not saying this applies to any of you. But for me, it's been the case more often than not. Sometimes 
I rail against all the bad things happening in the world and I want to establish justice. But I find that there's something deeply rooted in me that is more often drawn to the praise of men. I'd much rather have your approval and your praise than justice. Sometimes I find even on the other side of that equation that I'm drawn to the revenge on my enemies more than I am justice. And so, with that last line of Amos's plea, I have to be honest and ask you that my soul is sometimes in tumult and I ask, is there any hope at all that God can be gracious to someone as flaky and inconsistent as I am? See, Amos is a different book than a book, say, like Isaiah. Isaiah has heavy notes of judgment in it, just like Amos. But it's frequently interspersed with promises of coming redemption. Amos has virtually none of that. For nine and a half chapters, it is judgment and more judgment and more judgment and more judgment. And it can be very discouraging and distressing to proceed through its pages looking for hope. Where's the happy part, God? But when you come to the end of chapter 9... After reading irrevocable promise after promise of punishment to come, you you read it and, and emotionally, in your soul, you may feel bloody and bruised and exhausted and scarred and you need relief. And there you are in the end of chapter 9 and you read something like this. Amos 9.11, after literally just a bombardment, of the things that God is going to do in response to their wickedness. It says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is falling and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. The kingdom of David in Amos's first nine chapters, has seemed to fail because of injustice and unrighteousness. Its subjects, because of this, are going to be judged. They are going to be dispersed in exile very shortly. But in these verses that we just read, the language of the book changes from a heavy emphasis on destruction and it's replaced by words like, raise up. By words like, repair by words like rebuild, by words like possess. God promises to restore this ash heap known as Israel. Now historically, we've already talked about this, Israel would be dispersed and even forgotten. We've talked about the lost tribes of Israel that constitute the nation of Israel. So how would God accomplish this redemption Well, in this passage, we find out that God promises this redemption by extending his grace to all the other nations where Israel has been scattered. In fact, he promises to extend his grace to all the nations of the world. See, though the house of David was in ruins, God would raise up his booth or his tent again. And he would do this by installing one of David's sons on the throne, not to rule temporarily until he died, 
but he would rule eternally with the promise that he would never die. And this restoration will not be accomplished. This is the important part. Because when we talk about our own tendency toward injustice and unrighteousness, you might think, oh man, that's heavy stuff. And you're right, it is. But see, what God is promising in the book of Amos and other places throughout the Old Testament is that this restoration is not going to be accomplished by people like you and me trying harder to be good. That's good news, by the way. We call that the gospel. It's not going to be accomplished by us vowing again and again to keep the law. See, what's going to happen is God is promising that it's going to be done by a faithful king gifting his subjects with a righteousness that they could never achieve. Never. And, and by walking in fellowship with them to produce in them his nature daily. Now this king, of course, is Jesus. And he has opened the kingdom wide to all who are of the faith, not the lineage, but of the faith of Abraham. And he's regarding them as righteous no matter where they have been. No matter how idolatrous unjust, unrighteous they've been. He's promising them to regard that he will regard them as righteousness. And all he is requiring from them is faith to believe that he can do that and repentance to turn from something inferior to something superior. To turn from sin and turn to Jesus. Romans 4.3 illustrates this with an example from history. It says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So Amos can rail for nine chapters about unrighteousness and, and Jesus says this to you today. Believe me and I'll make you righteous. He doesn't say, be righteous and then I'll give you me. He says, believe me. Believe what I have said is true. Believe that I am the answer for your life and I will make you righteous. So the good news of Amos, as dark and heavy as it seems, the good news of Amos for people living in the 21st century is that the king has come. His kingdom has been established. And right now, he invites the unrighteous, he invites the unjust to his side to be accepted by him and to be made holy in him. And that's the good news of Amos. But no matter how long you preach this message, this gospel, there are some that will still try to work their way in. If you're one of those people that are just trying to be good, trying to, to get the, the balance of your deeds where the, where the good goes higher and the bad goes lower, let me tell you something. There is no promise, there is no hope remaining for you if you pursue that course of action. There is no joy, there's no prosperity to be found in God in that path. Only certain judgment awaits you. Because you're trusting in your own power and your own power cannot save you. Many people think because of some religious pedigree that they have that they're in good with God. 
And they sing loudly of heaven and have some wispy thoughts of mansions and streets of gold that they think in that moment when they die or Jesus comes back is going to release them from all their earthly troubles. But they will be shocked when the end arrives. We read this morning, Amos 5.18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Imagine that image. You're running from a a man-eating lion right into the jaws of a bear. Or he went into his house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? For those who are working their way in, the day of the Lord, the revelation of Christ will not be a day of joy for you. I'm not telling you that because I'm angry with you. I'm telling you that because I love you. Put your trust in Jesus. Looking upon the sin of Israel and declaring their impending destruction, Amos makes a plea in our text today that Raven read us. Amos 5.24, But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. But have we not conclusively discovered that neither righteousness or justice can ever be produced from our best attempts? From where then is this justice and righteousness to come? Where? Where do we find that? In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, This gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I stand. See, it was there on the cross that perfect justice rolled down from the throne of God like a flood. And it collided with the Son of God, and it killed him. Every sin on him was laid, idolatry, injustice, every other form of our wickedness and unrighteousness. Jesus paid the debt of all transgressions for everyone who would ever dare believe in him. And we are now justified because he was condemned, because justice rolled down like a flood. Because the price has been paid. This is the great part for us. Because the price has been paid, righteousness ever flows like a stream from his wounded hands, his feet, his side. The grace of God is too vast. Did you hear me? The grace of God is too vast. You can't damn it up. You can't out the mercy of God. You can't... Make God's forgiveness of you expire. We are not saved because of our hold on Jesus, but we are saved because of His hold on us. I read this this morning. It wasn't even in my notes. These guys don't have this in my notes, but I had to add it. 
Psalm 36, I was thinking about justice rolling down like a flood and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And I read this in my Bible this morning. Psalm 36, 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Listen to this. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them to drink from the river of your delights. How good is that? Righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Hebrews 7 says this. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Justice has flowed down like a flood. Righteousness from Christ is an ever-flowing stream. As long as Christ lives, you cannot be separated from Him if you have placed your trust in Him. Let's pray. Would you stand with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we are the unjust. We don't deny it, we confess it. We're the unjust, we're the unrighteous. We are those who have made idols out of everything we could conceivably make idols out of, of our own reputations, of our own appearance, of our own possessions and wealth of our own ideas, attitudes. We've placed them all on a throne and bowed before them. And so, Lord, we realize, reading through the book of your prophet Amos, that we deserve every one of the judgments that he promised to Israel because we are just as guilty, if not more guilty, than Israel. Lord, there are many here this morning who have placed their trust in you. And we thank you that when your justice rolled out of heaven like a, like a steamroller, God, it didn't land on us. But it landed on your son. Every single thing that I deserved, every sin on him was laid. And yet he bore it all. He bore it all for love. And because of that, Lord, I can place my trust in Him and be declared righteous by You. And I thank You for that, Lord. Holy Spirit, would You awaken the conscience of those who are here who have not placed their trust in You. Awaken the conscience of those who, because of some religious activity, some effort on their own, think that they have placed their trust in you. Lord, will you expose that lie for what it is and teach them to cling only to Christ, trusting in Him only for their salvation. And those of us who truly have placed their trust in you and yet find ourselves returning over and over again to a law of works, a law of effort, Lord God, help us to renew our trust in you and to lean heavily into you, O God. To trust you, that you are enough, that your grace is sufficient for all of our sin. 
We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I'm going to pronounce a benediction over you and send you out in blessing. Couldn't think of a better one than this. Romans 8:38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.